Well, good morning, everybody. It's great to be here together. Um, let me begin by saying a word of congratulations to all the graduates or soon-to-be graduates uh, who are here with us this morning. As your church family, we celebrate with you. We're excited for this accomplishment. So thank you um, for being a part of our family and uh, just know that we are delighted to be able to celebrate with you. And for the family members who are in town, I know it's a big weekend and family members that are in town, thanks for coming and worshiping with us this morning. It's great to have you here with us. Uh, if you are new here with us, if maybe this is your first time or you know, you're a family member from out of town, let me just catch you up just a little bit on where we find ourselves this morning. In 2013, we are encouraging one another in the practice of daily Bible reading. We're calling it Open Here. And by the way, it's never too late to jump in. Just because you didn't start in January doesn't mean you couldn't start now. So you can find it on our website. Uh, I think there's actually 1,400 people or so that have signed up to be receiving notifications and joining in. Uh, we'd love to have you with us, and uh, you can do so on the website. Uh, our Sunday mornings during 2013 are coinciding with our, our uh, Bible reading throughout the week and as we read through the story of the Bible together. We've divided the sermon series into seven sections or seven series. Uh, you know the first series was history, the, uh, or beginnings. The second series we moved on to was to history. And today we move on to a new section or a new series where we'll be resting for the next five weeks. Uh, as you can probably tell from the graphics, uh, this new section is called Poetry. Now, for those of you who know me, you're probably chuckling right now and thinking to yourself, Kevin is doing poetry? <laughs> really? And I don't blame you because I'm chuckling too. And I could come up with a conspiracy theory. Tim, I see that nodding of the head. I could come up with a conspiracy theory of how I got scheduled for this Sunday, but I'll resist. I, but I do think Andrew Jones had something to do with it. I'm just not completely sure. But here I am, and here we are, poetry. For those of you who don't know me, I played football and have a degree in petroleum engineering. And that statement is not usually followed by, and I love poetry. <laughs> I like formulas, solutions, processes, and grunting sounds. <laughs> when I read the Bible, I like for it to be clear and easy to understand. But if you're like me and have journeyed into the Bible and have read it, you probably recognize that it rarely is. There are times when I read and I sort of scratch my head and have no idea what I just read. And, and then this thought hits me of why couldn't it be clearer? Or even worse, I think I could make that clearer in just a few bullet points. <laughs> Can anybody relate? I, and students, you know, track with me here. I mean, you're with me on this, aren't you? I thought it would get better as I'm getting older, but I'm not sure it really does. A few weeks ago, I read The Great Gatsby. Uh, I, I probably read it in high school, but um, <laughs> when I saw the movie trailer, I absolutely remember nothing about the story, <laughs> which is proof that students, that Cliff Notes, Spark Notes are not the same as reading the book, uh, just so you know, or, or it proves that high school is a really long time for me, a long, long time ago, and I just can't remember. I don't know which it is, but as I began to read F. Scott Fitzgerald's story, I must admit to you that early on and kind of trying to dig into it, I took it on vacation and I like my vacation books to be easy to read. And I just sort of like, what is this? Why couldn't he make it clearer? 
It took me a while to get into his writing style. But the more I read and the more that I reread, the more I began to enjoy the beauty of his writing. And I'm thankful that he didn't listen to what I was wanting. The Bible is often like that for me. At first, I find myself saying, what? But after digging in, then I begin to see God's word in ways that I'm thankful that it wasn't boiled down to bullet points. And as we begin these five weeks in the books of the Bible known as the poetic books or sometimes referred to as the wisdom literature, I think we'll need to regularly remind ourselves of this very reality. Poetry causes us to think. It evokes emotion. It stretches our imagination. It demands our mental engagement. I mean, I can still remember like it was a nightmare that will never end, the discussions we had about poetry in my high school literature class. The teacher would usually say something like, so what do you think the author is saying? People would begin talking, you know, sharing their thoughts, and I was just over there waiting for her to finally tell me what the author meant so I could write it down. But she never did. And this frustrated me greatly. Just just tell me so I can know how to answer the test. That's not how poetry works. Poetry is embedded with truth and meaning, but it often requires great effort at finding it and reflecting upon it. Now, to be fair, I've got to come clean and say that I do love poetry because the truth is that I love music. I know I just lost credibility with the spoken word poetry purists here in the crowd, but hang with me just for a moment. Does anyone else here love to listen to an album, to music, and, and have the lyrics with them? I mean, that's, I really enjoy that. And whenever I come across a song that I'm listening to and reflecting on and I don't understand it, well, I do what we all do right now in this day and age. We go to Google and try to find out, okay, is there anywhere I can find the explanation for this? I do this all the time. A few years ago, I, uh, one of my favorite artists, Sarah Groves, released a short song on one of her CDs, um, and I just loved it. Uh, it's, it's a song called To the Moon. It's a very short song, and I asked Randy and Tara to sing it for us this morning.
Now, when I first heard this song, I had my ideas of what Sarah was writing, what she was meaning to say, but, you know, I needed a little confirmation. I went to Randy, a fellow Sarah Grows fan, and uh, Randy, have you heard the song? What do you think? Uh, we talked about it. We searched the web. Surely she had written something about this. Nothing. So Randy and I did what any interested pastor might do. We invited Sarah to come for a concert so we could ask her. <laughs> now, that's not the reason we invited her, but we, when she was here, we made the most of the opportunity of having her here. Randy and I sprung it on her. She was actually sitting right here. We still remember Randy and I standing right here. It's like, hey, we love that song, To the Moon. You know, it was like, there's this, we were waiting for the moment to craft that, you know, jump on her. We love that song, To the Moon. What, what were you meaning by that? And you guessed it, nothing. I think she might have actually said something like, well, what do you guys think? As we rambled on, I, she just gave us this smile, sort of like, there's no way I'm telling you. I had flashbacks to my high school literature class. This is poetry. And the first song that we're going to, or the first book that we're going to look at in the poetry series is actually a songbook. We know it as the Psalms. So if you have your Bible and want to follow along as we read this poem, this poetry together, you'll find it in the first book of the Psalms, Psalm 1, which you'll find somewhere in the middle of your Bible. Let me just kind of orient us just a little bit as you're turning there. You might remember a few weeks back, we looked at Deuteronomy 30. Deuteronomy 30 is an important piece of scripture, and in many ways, it lays a framework for the Psalms. God speaks to his people and tells them that there are two paths, two options. One bring, brings life and one brings death. If you were here that Sunday, you might remember we showed the Kid President video where Kid President quotes Robert Frost that the two roads diverged in the woods, and I took the road less traveled. And it hurt, man. <laughs> I love the classic line that the kid president delivers when he says, not cool, Robert Frost. <laughs> and while everybody's l laughing, watching the video, he delivers a line that I think gets missed by many people as they watch it. He's sitting in front of a locker, and he says, but what if there really are two paths? Let's face it, we live in a culture that doesn't want to think about the possibility that all paths aren't equal. And that some paths may lead in, to a wrong result, to pain and suffering and death and ultimately eternal punishment. But Psalm 1 sets the tone for all of the poetry books that we will encounter and establishes the framework of these two paths. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He's like a tree 
planted by streams of water, which yields fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and in all he does he prospers. The wicked are not so, but they are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. And once again, we're left with a common poetry question. What was the writer meaning? And just to be clear, my goal today is to simply get us started in the work of thinking and reflecting on this poem. Now, I don't want to torment you like my high school literature teacher did. However, I don't want to give simplistic answers that rob you of the joy of the discovery of what you'll find here in Psalm 1. I want us to dig into the meaning of this poem by exploring some words that you'll see directly in this poem. And the first word I want us to look at is the word that begins the poem. It is the word blessed or blessed. The psalmist grabs our attention right off the bat. Blessed is the man who. It's almost like the signal is saying, hey, do you want to know the secret to life, how to experience happiness and flourishing that God intended? Well, I'm about to tell you. And in many ways, this will be the theme of the Psalms. What does the flourishing life look like, life look like and how can we live it? Now, this idea of blessing starts the Psalms from an important framework. And it is this, that experiencing the life that God intended is primarily a gift from God. Let me say that again. Experiencing the life that God intended is primarily a gift from God. It's not something we can do for ourselves. I mean, stop and think about it for just a moment. It's just silly to try to bless yourself, isn't it? I was thinking through ways to illustrate this. Let's just say you sneeze. What do you say in that moment? Well, nothing. I guess if it's messy, you might say, I'm sorry, but uh, nothing really, right? Because you don't say, I mean, it'd just be stupid to say, oh, bless me. Blessing is something somebody does to you, bless you. And all those blessing is something that's done to us or for us, the listener or reader here in Psalm 1 would immediately know that the writer was about to explore and communicate what this blessed life looks like. How do I know if I've received God's blessing? What, does, what are the signposts or the markers that might indicate that blessing? And the psalmist doesn't disappoint. Look with me at another word in here. It's the word delight. One way to understand what the blessed life look like, looks like is to discover for each of us, what it is that we are longing for and where we're attempting to find pleasure. This is the idea of this word delights. It's where are we going to find uh, pleasure, find things that brings happiness. And it's pretty clear here what our chief desire should be, the primary source of our pleasure, the law of the Lord, the very word of God. One of the things that's interesting here in this poem is that delighting in God's word is contrasted against 
seeking counsel from the wicked. Do you see it there? There's this, the blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And anytime you see a contrast like this in Scripture, and particularly throughout the poetry series, you ought to ask, what do those have in common? And there's one thing in common here, and that is that they both speak. So this leads to an important question for us this morning. Who or what are we listening to? Who or what is guiding the direction of our life as we're seeking and longing for it and hungering after it and wanting to find pleasure in it? And if you're like me, chances are that you often find yourself searching after things other than God's Word. Now, what we're searching after might not be as obviously wrong as the wicked and the sinners and the scoffers. But let's be honest, who are we fooling? We know, don't we, that the pursuit of pleasure, pleasure outside of God's provision will always be long, unfulfilling in the long term. The pursuit of pleasure outside of God will always be unfulfilling in the long term. Always. So the psalmist gives us a glimpse in another word here of a way to train our desires to the things of God. And it's found in the word meditates. Do you see it there in verse 2? And on his law he meditates day and night. Now when we think of meditation... We think of crossed legs and incense and, um, right? That's the most common thing that comes to mind when we think of meditation. But this is not what the psalmist is referring to. At the time of this writing, there is no Bible. There's not a printing press. People don't have a Bible app on their phone. They don't receive daily emails from Andrew Clausen telling them to read their Bible. None of that. If they wanted to remember God's word, they had to memorize it. And to memorize it, that meant that they would be regularly reciting it to keep it fresh in their mind. This is the idea of the Hebrew word that is translated here as meditates. It is really to murmur, to be repeating. You know when you're trying to memorize something, it blesses a man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand the seas. That's, this is the murmuring that it's referring to here in Psalm 1. It's the intelligible repetition of someone speaking words that they are trying to hang on to. If you stop and think about it, we have more access to God's word than any generation before us. And yet, I think there's a good chance that we spend the least amount of time thinking on it and reflecting on it. Can anyone relate? I mean, are you with me on this? Neil Postman, uh, in his book, Amusing Ourselves to Death, compared and contrasted the, the book George Orwell's 1984 with Aldous Huxley's Brave New World. And he wrote these poignant words almost 20 years ago. He says, what Orwell feared were those who would ban books. What Huxley feared was that there would be no reason to ban a book 
for there would be no one who wanted to read one. Orwell feared those who would deprive us of information. Huxley feared those who would give us so much that we would be reduced to passivity and egoism. Orwell feared that the truth would be concealed from us. Huxley feared that the truth would be drowned in a sea of irrelevance. So let me ask you this morning, what is it that you're meditating on? I mean, we all meditate. We all, our mind goes on things all the time. But what's the content of your meditations? Has the truth been drowned in a sea of irrelevance? I spent some time this week looking at a a new psychological diagnosis called connection addiction. I got to admit, it hit a little too close to home for me. One of the things that was in there just prompts a question to all of us this morning is, is, do we find ourselves wanting to check email, Facebook, our phone every five minutes or less? I don't like saying that, by the way. I had to come clean with Sharon yesterday because I just recognized that connectivity is at an, an, of in, and information is at an all-time high. And yet, as I look back on my life, my meditations are shallower and shorter. It's one of the blessings of getting older is that you have so many memories to look back to, but you can also see how life has changed and wish it wasn't. Lord, have mercy. Lord, teach us to desire to long for and meditate on your word. A life of thoughtful meditation is countercultural in our world, particularly countercultural in this community that we live in. It requires discipline and an intentionality that the psalmist points to. You see the word streams? The blessed are compared to a tree that is planted by streams of water. Now, when we think of this, we we read this, we may think of a mountain stream or a, a tree planted near a river. But it's what most likely the psalmist is pointing to is a tree that is near an irrigation canal. It's not near as sexy and probably doesn't make as cool of a picture. But there's an intentionality here that the psalmist wants us to know that this tree has been removed from the dangers of flooding or the fast pace of a river that might cause erosion. And the original listener would have understood that this tree is in a place of serenity and quiet. So let me ask you, how are you doing at experiencing quiet in your life? I have a hunch that, just because I played this game yesterday, that you are running through excuses in your mind of why you don't experience quiet. Uh, it's graduation weekend, right? And next weekend will be better. Or you've got this big project at work 
surely next month will be better. Maybe you're saying to yourself, I have so much work to get ready for my finals. The summer's going to be better. Or maybe it's, you know, I've got to make the most of this moment in my business while the stock market is on the rise. Next quarter will be better. Or maybe it's, I have small children. I have no idea when it will be better. And although we deny it, almost like a pathological liar who actually believes that it will get better, deep in our soul, we know it's not getting better. I've heard it said that we're perfectly aligned to get the results that we're getting. You may have heard that business maximum. Or another way of saying it is we're getting what we're getting because we're doing what we're doing. So friends, you're not hopeless. The lack of quiet in your life is in your control. So what adjustments do we need to make? And who are we going to tell about the adjustments? So that we're more likely to actually do them. You know what I'm talking about there? I mean, I have... I have a diet, and then I have a diet when I tell people. The diet when I tell people is always better. The diet that I just keep to myself, I'm kind of, it never works. Now, how we carry this out will definitely be shaped by the next word, and it's the word judgment. The psalmist compares the wicked to chaff. Now, I'm an Oklahoma kid. I grew up near the wheat fields and uh, where the waving wheat can sure smell sweet when the wind comes. Oh, no. It's, that, I, this is wheat, by the way. There are grains in here. I'm going to pull one of them out. That is chaff, actually, that just fell. Here's the grain. And this little piece right here, that, that is chaff. It's unwanted. It's unnecessary. Well, it's necessary. It has a function. But when it's done, it's done. And the psalmist says that the, the wicked will be like the chaff that are blown away or driven away. Now, I was trying to think through what's a city. I mean, I don't think we have many wheat farmers in here. What's the city comparison to this? Here's the best I could come up with. Uh, this is like the, um, the grass clippings that land on the sidewalk after you've mowed your yard that you're hoping the wind will blow away into your neighbor's. They're useless. I mean, the city won't even pick them up anymore. You know, it's like, what do I do with these grass clippings? As John the Baptist prepared people for the arrival of Jesus, he may have been thinking about Psalm 1 as he said that Jesus would come to, to gather the wheat and that he would throw the chaff into an unquenchable fire. In Matthew 28, we find that Jesus separates out, separates out people and sends some to eternal punishment. Disturbing? It is. But it begs an important question, and that is this do we believe there will be a judgment? You know, statistics say that 9 out of 10 Americans believe that there is a God. Probably even a higher percentage of you here this morning. 
However, I think it's easy for us to know that there are many here this morning who are in that nine out of ten that just have a hard time believing that God would judge. I mean, God is a God of grace and love, right? And although we may have never said it out loud or you may have never spoken the words, you believe that the idea that, that God would judge is just sort of old-fashioned and it's intolerant and it's just too exclusive. It makes you uncomfortable. If this describes you this morning, I, I want to ask you a very honest question. And by the way, this is not in any way to try to trap you or anything like that. But if you're questioning God's judgment, can I just honestly ask you, what do you do with the Ohio captor Ariel Castro? I think if you're honest with yourself, you'll find that you've created your own exclusive system of how God accepts people. And it's built around how good of a person you are. Tim Keller, pastor of Redeemer Pres in New York City, states it this way. He says that the universal religion of humankind is this. He says we develop a, we develop a good record and give it to God, and then he owes us. But the gospel is this. God develops a good record, gives it to us, and then we owe him. And he says, in short, to say a good person, not just Christians, can find God, is to say that good works are enough to find God. I think if you really will ponder this, and I encourage you, if you're questioning the judgment, if you'll take time to think this through, that you'll see that the gospel of Jesus, the story the gospel of Jesus tells is actually more inclusive than the story you're trying to tell yourself. I mean, you've, required, you've created an arbitrary framework of where God's goodness is, where does God's acceptance begin to apply. And the gospel says that none are worthy. All of us need a savior to rescue. And as a result, all are welcome. The pursuit of good enough will either end in depression because of your failure or in pridefulness because you've set the bar low enough that you can succeed and Ariel Castro can't. But here's a truth that I hold to that I am so thankful for and I think we find so clearly in Psalm 1 that God sets the bar. We do not. To truly understand the good news of the gospel, friends, we first have to come to grips with the bad news. So here it is. The bar is set very high. And we are broken sinners who have no hope of being good enough. None. It doesn't matter how much you read your Bible, how much you meditate, how much scripture you memorize, the people you hang out with. The goal is not being good. It's being righteous. In his letter to the Romans, Paul stated the bad news this way. He says that no one is righteous. 
There's a literary thing that he uses. I just love it. No one is righteous. No, not one. As in no one. Not Billy Graham, not Mother Teresa, not Ariel Castro, not you, not me. And it's this bad news that makes the good news truly good news. The psalmist alludes to it here. He says that he knows the way of the righteous. He's watching out for, he's protecting the righteous. He will be their rescue when judgment comes. And as we read this, we can only make sense of this by pointing to the further ahead in the story, a rescuer who would come for each of us. I love the way Eugene Peterson paraphrases the good news of the gospel found in the third chapter of Romans in Paul's letter to the Romans. And so as we close this morning, I just want to read his paraphrase. Uh, I've sort of inserted a few things of mine in there. I think it will be rather obvious. I know you've heard Psalm 1, but in our time, something new has been added. What Moses and the prophets witnessed to all those years has happened. The God setting things right that we read about in places like Psalm 1 has become Jesus setting things right. And not only for us here at Christ Community or in America or as people who think we're good, but for everyone who believes in him. For there is no difference, there is no difference between us and them. Since we've compiled this long, sorry record as sinners, both us and them, and proved that we are utterly incapable of living the glorious lives that God wills for us, God did it for us. Out of sheer generosity, He put us in right standing with himself, a pure gift. He got us out of the mess we're in and restored us to where he always wanted us to be, and he did it by the means of Jesus Christ. And just in case you've never heard the good news, I want you to know that God sacrificed Jesus on the altar of the world to, to clear that world of sin. And having faith in him sets us in the clear. God decided on this course of action in full view of the public to set the world in the clear with himself through the sacrifice of Jesus, finally taking care of the sins for which he had so patiently endured. This is not only clear, but it's now. This is current history God sets things right. He also makes it possible for us to live in this rightness. So, dear friends, where does this leave our proud insider claims and counterclaims? They're canceled. What we've learned is this, that God does not respond to what we do. We respond to what God does. And where does this leave our proud claim to have a corner on God? Also canceled. God is the God of outsiders as well as insiders. How could it be otherwise since there's only one God? God sets right all who welcome his action and enter into it. Both those who follow our religious system 
and those who have never heard of it. Let's pray. Lord, we come to you this morning with humble hearts, joyful hearts. Lord, it's almost overwhelming to think of my sinfulness and brokenness. And the price you paid for it, the sacrifice of your son. You made it right for me, for us. As those who believe, may we never become dull to this amazing good news. Lord, forgive us for the times when we get confused and begin to think and live as if we need to be good enough to deserve or earn your love. Forgive us for the ways we set a bar of acceptance and pridefully exclude others based on our man-made system. Remind us again that you are God and we are not. Lord, give us strength to lean into the good news and live the blessed life that you designed us to live. Lord, give us understanding on the changes we need to make and the courage to make it. Lord, I pray for those who are here who have heard this good news today and in the mystery of your ways, Although it's probably been heard many times, you've turned a light switch on for them this morning. When they begin to understand that they've built their own religious system to earn your favor, and whether they're experiencing the pridefulness of their own good efforts or the depression of their failures, Lord, I pray for them right now and ask that you would speak to them of your love and acceptance. Lord, we all take a moment to speak to you and cry out, Lord, have mercy. We repent of our sinful ways. We place our hope in you and in you alone. In Jesus' name we pray.